For me, it was almost like a pilgrimage. Visiting the headquarters of Runkeeper to say thank you for making this app, app accessible. If you didn't create this app, I would never have started on this journey. And even that was incredible because back then there was a voice of Runkeeper. You know, the actual voice that says the distances. Now, that's a real person, or it was back then. And it was someone called Cat. So I was in a running store in Boston, and Cat was there, and she came up to speak to me. You know, Cat's voice is the voice that gave me the confidence to go out and run every day. It was her voice in my head saying how far I'd gone. So her voice to me had almost become the voice in my head, the voice that could tell me. I could keep going. And now this was a real person that was there. And I got to meet her. And that's what it's always been about. Simon Wheatcroft is living proof that resilience is born from adversity. Accepting that things will go wrong, not go to plan, and being prepared to embrace failure without fear. Having lost his sight at an early age, Simon used running solo as his foundation to building an abundant life as a runner, motivational speaker, and now teacher. In part one of this two-parter, Simon discusses the impact of growing up in the 80s in a small coal mining town in the north of England and the devastating social and economic impact of the coal mine closures. He also recounts the experience of growing up suffering from a degenerative eye disorder that ultimately resulted in his loss of sight by his late teens. Simon discusses how this impacted his ambitions, his education, but how the degeneration of his sight did help him develop spatial, memory and mental acuity skills that prepared him to confront the challenges of living without sight. Having lived many years in a state of denial, Simon explains a pivotal point in his life when he accepted his condition and embraced running as a means of creating a new pathway in the world. We discuss the many challenges he faced in those early days, the value of the voice direction from the Runkeeper app and his ability to sense what was underfoot. He discusses his daily challenges and stresses of running solo without sight, confronting the fear of not seeing oncoming obstacles and cars. We then cover his boundary-pushing attitude that led him to the US and running 200 miles from Boston to New York to line up for his first New York marathon. In part two, we cover the technologies that are helping Simon and others like him run with a spatial awareness of sighted runners. His life as a motivational speaker, an educator, and his perspectives on living with fear, confronting failure, adversity and resilience. I'm sure you will feel uplifted, inspired and energised by the life story of Simon Wheatcroft. Simon, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Oh, you know, it's great to be here. Looking forward to having a good chat. Yeah, and we have to give a shout out uh, to the wonderful founders of Wearworks, Keith and Kevin, Keith Kirkland and Kevin Yu for recommending that we interview you next. So let's get going. We always start with upbringing, but I couldn't help notice something you had written on your LinkedIn profile where you say, I lost my sight at 17 and began a journey of adapting technology to achieve the impossible. And then you go on uh, to say further in that uh, paragraph, I aim to become involved in a technology company and aid with direction and vision to create products and services that continue to make the impossible possible. And given that we use exactly that on our site, that we set out to interview people who make their own impossibles possible. You're probably the most perfect person across all the interviews that we've <laughs> we've done. And we're now into the hundreds uh, of someone that's doing exactly that. Well, maybe it's me just claiming it's impossible. We'll, we'll find out as, uh, as we continue to talk. Well, I think uh, uh, for listeners that maybe don't know your story, they'll find that you're pretty well on the journey to making your impossible possible. So before you get into talking about your life, 
and what's happened since a pivotal point in your teens. And before we get into your motivational speaking, your running and your, your career, tell us about your childhood. And I believe that you were born in Doncaster, which for people that aren't Scottish, English, Welsh and Irish, that is in the north of England, essentially. Yeah, sure. Well, um, it does say Doncaster in a lot of my profiles, but actually I grew up in an even smaller village just outside of Doncaster. Called? At Rosington. And it's an old mining village. Uh, So for people who are not aware, there's a a lot of minor strikes in the sort of 80s in the UK, which caused a lot of sort of social conflict. And, you know, Rosington was a mining town, a mining village. So when the mine closed, it brought with it a lot of problems, you know, uh, really low employment, uh, all the factories began to shut down as well. So growing up, I'd say I was surrounded by people that were struggling. Yep. You know, I, I was fortunate. My parents didn't work in the mines, so, you know, we were relatively sheltered from that side of it. But of course, everyone who I grew up with, a lot of people were in that situation. And, you know, you could see the village was struggling. There was no real jobs difficult it was i just remember things being difficult you know some people not even having enough money for food you know things like that so that's who my sort of social network were the people that were going through that and i think you know that definitely formed the mindset in the early days that you know life is a struggle for us all everyone's having to struggle in one way or another just to just to eat to educate yourself and so on and you know, when you're having those troubles perhaps at home with finances and food, that spills out into education. And to put it sort of into the bigger picture thing, when I was at school, I think in my school, yeah, perhaps only two people made it to university, maybe three. So out of 160, 180 children, only a handful of children sort of made it through to that, to that next level. And I wasn't one of those people. I didn't go to to college or university. I decided to sort of try and get a job as early as possible to to start to earn money. So yeah, I think I think that's what I remember from my early childhood. Just you know the the people around me struggling, just constantly in, in every way you could imagine. Well, I remember those times. I was in Scotland during the time of the the miners' strikes, and obviously in today's uh, environment we're used to seeing police on the streets and violence and rioting but i think people that didn't grow up in britain anyone that did grow up in britain during those thatcher years will remember margaret thatcher being a leader and was the instigator of closing the mines and wreaking havoc in the, the social fabric of these communities there were mass protests there was police violence it was really quite disturbing watching those those times and communities literally devastated by the, the heart of their economy being ripped out of them. So yeah, I totally empathize with with what you must have gone through at those times. Yeah, I'd say even to today, because I still live in the same village, uh-huh. you know, the jobs just never came back. You know, it's not like there's new mines and new factories and there's almost like you can see the two sides of the people that, you know, use this village to commute. And then the people whose jobs were wiped out and it's taken a long time to you know, get back to where the village used to be. And for all the, sort of the politicians' platitudes about, oh, there'll be reinvestment in education and new job creation, I don't think that happened. It didn't happen in central West Scotland, where there were also mines, where I've got many friends that grew up there. 
And it certainly didn't happen in Wales and it didn't happen in the north of England. So start off in quite a low air. <laughs> yeah, I know, but it, 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 yeah, but it's, it puts context around, uh, around the journey. So what about your parents? How did they guide you and what, what did your father and mother do? And did you have, and, and your sibling, and siblings as well? My father was an electrician and my mother worked uh, for the police. I would say, looking back, I don't remember a huge amount of my childhood because I was obviously going through this uh, this relatively traumatic period of losing my sight. Mm-hmm. And they're the memories that have endured more than anything else. You know, I, I remember the great times, you know, going out and playing with my friends and doing things. But then, of course, the flip side is, you know, at the age of sort of 13, 14, realizing something's wrong. And then I just remember this constant cycle of, going to this hospital, going to that hospital, you know, trying to find out what was going on. And then before we knew it... What were the early symptoms? Well, to be honest, I had no idea I was losing my sight. Uh, One of the issues with sight is you don't sit down with your friends and constantly have conversations about what you can currently see. Mm -hmm. That's just something that doesn't really happen. So I didn't really grasp that I was losing my sight. I just thought I saw what everybody else did. And... uh, a good example is I used to play cricket. So as the batsman, I often used to lose sight of the ball coming towards me. Dangerous. Well, I assume that's just what you saw, you know, that you just get this, maybe a glimpse here, maybe a glimpse there of the ball. And that was that. But now it turns out that I had lots of dead spots and I had no idea that the ball was actually traveling through these <laughs> dead spots. And I had, I had no idea what was going on. So it was just that. I'd never pieced these things together. I just assumed this is what everybody else saw. And on a routine visit uh, to the opticians, just to get my eyes checked, uh, the optician said, I really think you need to go to the hospital. You need to get your, your retina looked at. And that's what started it off. Found that out, headed to the hospital. And you were diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa? Yes. And for people that don't know about that condition, what, what is it? It's a degenerative eye disorder uh, so you're born with vision and what happens is as you age um, the rods in your retina die off so initially uh, you know you get something called like night blindness which means you know you struggle to see in the dark your peripheral vision closes in and then you know once that closes into a certain point then you begin to lose central vision so your central vision is what is responsible for acuity you know so the ability to to read things and Get the real fine focus. So then you lose that, and uh, the same sort of time as losing that sort of fine focus acuity, you also lose sort of color detection. So everything becomes quite monochromatic. You know, you don't get these huge distinctions of colors. It's just it's not like you just see black and grey, but everything just seems muted. It's like the the brightness and contrast have just been drained from the image. And then the next stage after that is uh, light perception. And then uh, after you lose light perception, of course, you see, uh, you see nothing. So up to the point where you were diagnosed with this, what were your ambitions at school? What did you, where did you think your life was going to take you? I really wanted to be a pilot. Um, <laughs> yes, you and me both. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I really, you. I really, I really wanted to. The uh, intention was to go Air Force and fly fighter jets. Of course. 
because you know what young boy doesn't want to fly fighter jet sounds so cool uh maybe it's because i grew up with top gun you know <laughs> i would think uh, it was cool to fly fighter jet but yeah uh, wanted to be a pilot and i believe flying a plane you know you, you probably is quite visual so that was <laughs> definitely out of the window and luckily I was also a big fan of technology when I was younger as well. You know, things like video games and computers. And so I had those two competing things. But yeah, when I was younger, it was definitely a pilot. So when you started to experience this, I mean, there must have been, we'll get into talking about the emotional impact of it. But just in terms of the journey you were on at school, how did life transition during that period, because these are these are defining years for any young developing adult between the ages of thirteen and seventeen. When you were going yeah. through this, were you able to stay on course in your in your education in in Doncaster? Uh, what I'll say right now is, when I was younger, I paid very little attention at school. I one hundred percent coasted, <laughs> 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 and that was there before. Uh, the diagnosis, but I am blessed with a very good memory. So I can memorize things relatively easily. So with the minimal effort at school and coasting, I was able to do, I wouldn't say amazing, but you know I did quite well. So I think my effort definitely decreased after the diagnosis, but you know, thankfully, because I was quite good at memorization, frankly, that's all the test uh, you know, a secondary school. If you could memorize the right facts and pop it down on a piece of paper at the end, I managed to do quite well, but I certainly wasn't very focused at all. So as you're going through that that journey, I mean, it's one of the questions I had is it's funny how our, our mind reacts to particularly trauma. What are your memories like pre you experienced this condition? No, I've only got a few memories, mm-hmm. like a handful. If I try and think, you know, of specific things that happened, I don't really have many memories sort of pre-diagnosis to be honest with you okay when you talked initially about the economic environment one of the questions we always ask our guests are did they grow up in an environment of scarcity or abundance it sounds like there was um, a lot of economic scarcity yeah i'd say we never struggled for food and things like that at home personally but equally i don't remember continuously you know getting gifts and being given things all the time. But like I say, it's so hard because as much as I try, I really don't have many memories sort of pre-diagnosis and post-diagnosis. You know, I was a teenager, so I was happy that I had a computer and couldn't really want for anything else. You know, I, I had a computer as far as I was concerned. That, that's, uh, that's all I really needed. So yeah, the memories are more just looking around and, and seeing that scarcity. But yeah, I certainly never went without the essentials at home. I always had uh, what I felt I needed at any one point in time. And once you were uh, diagnosed, how did the, your parents and even teachers uh, support you? Because you must have been thinking, just dealing with that trauma at that age, were you being conditioned to prepare for life where you wouldn't have sight? And were they giving you direction in terms of how you should think about your future life and career? No, I don't think many people at school even knew, never disclosed. Uh Because it's a degenerative disorder, you know, you can retain functional vision for a decent amount of time. So I did have functional vision, so there was no 
no reason to particularly disclose. Then in terms of thinking of my future, at the age of 13, 14, you know, uh, there was still a belief that science and technology could perhaps come up with a cure. So I hadn't thought of a future with no sight because at that age, you know, I could still functionally see and thought in future I may regain my vision anyway. So I rather perhaps stupidly never took those steps to ensure I had, uh, you know, lots of skills that would benefit me, you know, in the future. But, but there is something that really does stick in my mind, and that is, you know, at the age of 17, 18, this is quite common in England, everyone goes out drinking. And, um, of course, I got into that. But because I had night blindness, that would mean I couldn't see. So we'd go into bars and clubs and pubs and I couldn't see. Soon as I stepped in, couldn't see. So then I had to learn to move around these environments with no vision. And I certainly wasn't using a cane or anything at this point in time. So I used to memorize all the floor plans of everywhere I used to drink. And I could I knew the feeling underfoot on how to move around. So I didn't realize at the time, but I was actually building up these sort of navigational skills through touch that may benefit me in the future. But that was more accidental, you know, just because I wanted to go out drinking. And uh, that was the only way I could really solve the problem at that point in time. And did your friends realize this? Yes, I had a very specific circle of friends back then. Still close to uh, some of the key friends that I was friends with back then. And they knew, and they were the only people that really knew. Uh, No one outside of the circle had any idea that, you know, at that point in time, I was classed as blind. Must have been a bit tricky meeting uh, girls, going, uh, get your mates, come on, what's she like? (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, you know, I I certainly uh, certainly had a few girlfriends back then. I mean, funnily enough, I'm actually married to one of the girls I met when I was, I think she was what? 16, 17, I'd have been 18, 19. We didn't stay together, but we, you know, we, that's where we met. And then we, we met again years later and then we're getting married. Yeah, we're going to go and talk about that um, and <laughs> the, the event uh, when you proposed. But um, just about that adjustment, I, I've heard you say that you didn't take it too well at first. So at what point did you start to embrace the challenges that you were facing? Took, took years. Uh-huh. It certainly wasn't something that, you know, was measured in weeks or months. It was measured in years. I'd say it took five, six years. Wow. So it really wasn't until you're in your late teens before you fully embraced this. Oh, it was early, early 20s. Wow. I'm classing the point from when I was, you know, classed as blind, not when I was you know, initially diagnosed. So I'd, I'd have been like 22, 23 before, you know, I really started to turn it around. Because like I say, when you've got functional vision, and, you know, you can move around without disclosing. You can blend in relatively well and, you know, you don't need to disclose. No one needs to know. You just blend into the background like everybody else does. And it was when I was getting to the point where those things were no longer possible. It's like, what do I do now? You know, now, you know, perhaps I haven't actually been dealing with the fact that, uh, the fact I've lost my sight. I've just been denying the fact I've lost my sight. And that's not really adapting and that's not moving forward. And I was stuck in that for a long time. 
So when you left school, did you leave with A-levels and decide to go into any further education or did you just say, right, I've got to have to... Yeah, I left with GCSEs. Like I say, I did did all right, did all great. Went on to college, did what's called a BTEC, National Diploma in Computing. And then uh, I also, I'm also a big fan of video games. And I can remember one day I just popped in this video game store and I was asking a very specific question about this particular game. And we got, I got chatting to the guy and he says, do you want a job? I went, oh, yeah, I can do. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be cool. So mm-hmm. then uh, I started working in this in this video game store. And uh, after I'd worked there a few years, I thought, oh, it's probably about time I got something a bit more serious than playing on video games all day. So then uh, that's when I went into sort of like the IT industry. So playing video games with limited sight, that must have been challenging as well. Yep, I, I could only play certain games and then other games I was just terrible at. You know, so I needed to play games that there wasn't particularly much going on on the screen and were a very high contrast. And then that's the other way I could play. And then there were certain parts of the game where there just wasn't enough contrast and I just couldn't really tell what was going on. Yeah, I just stuck to a few games that I played uh, played for years. And then, um, for example, what like there was a racing game I used to play. So then, like I knew the racetracks really, really well and stuff. And you know, I'm sure many race drivers could probably race around a track blindfolded, could yeah. just know it, you know, incredibly, incredibly well. So it, it was things like that. You know, it didn't like I could just buy any game that got released and, and know I could play it. You know, I stuck to uh, stuck to a limited catalogue of games. Yeah, so games like Doom were just off the off the shelf. You couldn't do that. Uh, well, Doom was released when I was like thirteen, so yeah. I played Doom. The original, uh. <laughs> well, Doom was it Doom Doom Two? So yeah, I played those games back then. But no, I certainly wasn't playing uh, AAA games in my early twenties. So when you decided, right, it's time to go off and do something uh, more serious. At that point, had you decided to start running? No, no, not at all. What actually happened was, you know, I told you I went off to get a job in the IT industry. Yes. Okay, so I was working in IT, and I was just starting to get a bit disillusioned by it all. And I was thinking, is this it? You know, I've got this job. It pays well. Or it did, you know, for for the age I was. And I was just like, but I'm just not enjoying it. You know, I'm getting quite bored uh, with what I'm doing. You know, is it for me? I feel like um, I'm spending all my time here and just not living enough of a life, really. So despite the fact, you know, I had a job and I was blind, because it's probably worth noting right now that 75% blind people are unemployed. So getting a job when you're blind is very, very, very hard. So then deciding to leave under voluntary redundancy and not have anything to do after that probably wasn't the smartest move. But I thought to myself, I just can't keep doing this. I just need to I need to do something different. So I put in voluntary redundancy and just thought it's time for a change. And with no idea of what you were that change was going to be. No. I mean that was a that's a giant leap. You must have had some faith in yourself at that point. Yeah. Uh, I definitely had some belief because, you know, I I've done quite well in the IT industry, you know. I, I'd say I was uh, I was very good at what I did. So I thought to myself, you know, let's go traveling, come back, get a job, do something different in IT. And uh, 
obviously it didn't pan out like that though, did it? <laughs> no. So let's talk about that, that moment, that pivotal transitional point in your life when you decided, right, running as a person with practically no sight whatsoever to get out and do something that would be alien to anyone else under any other normal circumstances. What, can you recount that moment? Yeah, it was after I returned from America and I was at home and I was just sat there assessing where I was in my life. You know, I'd, I'd got back from America, could not get a job. You know, as soon as you mention you're blind or, you know, gets put on the CV or whatever, all of a sudden the uh, door seemed to close. And I just thought, what am I going to do? And I felt, you know, I'd certainly been, you know, just stopping doing things, putting things on pause, just worried too much about the fact that, you know, I'd lost my sight. You know, what could I possibly do? And I was definitely slipping into, you know, a darker place. And I thought I really need just to get out and do something, you know. And at this point in time, you know, we were back to a time of scarcity where I didn't really have any money. You know, my, my wife and I were, we were definitely struggling. You know, we had to count every penny, you know, to make sure, you know, we could get by. So I knew I needed to do something that didn't really cost us anything, uh, something to, to occupy my time and, you know, to, to build myself back up and happen to live near a football pitch or soccer pitch, as uh, the Americans would call it. And I thought to myself, I could use this soccer pitch to get fit. So I just decided one day to head down to the soccer pitch, just run up and down the soccer pitch to see if I could run on my own. And how did you know when you reached the end of the soccer pitch that, that you, you'd reached the limits to the, or past the halfway line? Um, luckily, uh, being in uh, somewhere where they don't do much investment, uh, <laughs> the soccer <laughs> pitch <laughs> was very worn, you know, where the lines are. So there was defined like uh, grass, no grass. And where there's no grass, there's obviously a dip. So, you know, you, you'd run from, let's say, you know, the goal line. I don't know what all the lines are called in, in football, unfortunately. We know like there's the smaller box and the bigger box, yeah. uh-huh. then the semicircle. <laughs> then you run to the halfway line and there's the circle around the halfway line. So I knew that, you know, there were those defined elements on a football pitch. So you just, just use that to know where... Uh, how far I'd gone, turn around and uh, and run back. And then sometimes what I'd do is, you know, because they were rutted, like I just explained. So you could go to the the edge of the pitch and just run the full length of the pitch along that rutted line. So you could do lots of different things. Because of the ruts on the pitch, you could just run around the pitch and always get a sense of uh, where you were within this pitch. And I believe it wasn't long until you, you ventured beyond the football pitch no, it, it didn't take too long. You know, um, I was running up and down that pitch and I was using uh, RunKeeper on my phone because RunKeeper gives audio feedback. And where did that that next step take you? Because I've, I've watched a couple of your interviews and I believe you uh, migrated to closed roads and a local airport. Yeah, well, you can't actually technically run on the runway, but I, I used to run alongside the runway. So <laughs> I live in an airport. In fact, it used to be an Air Force base. Oh, the irony. I know, I know, I know. It's actually where the Vulcan used to be stationed. Oh yeah, the bombers. Yeah, because uh, until very recently, it used to be just uh, in the hangar where I used to run. So yeah, there used to be like this uh, fighter jet bomber just at the side of the road that I was running down, which was pretty cool. 
so yeah, I was training there and there were closed roads. So closed both ends, so I just run up and down the closed road. And I did it by feeling the yellow lines, which are, you know, on the road. I could feel them underfoot. She used to run up and down, up and down. And whilst I was a run keeper, I realised that with the distance markers and things I felt underfoot, I could pair those things, use the skills I'd picked up while drinking as a teenager, <laughs> memorise it all, put it together, learn to run the open road. So, you know, I didn't realise that this way I'd learned to navigate for the past sort of nine, ten years, it turned out would allow me to run solo. And I just, uh, I'd never pieced together that's what I was doing until I was out on those roads. And when you were doing this, did were there any other runners aware of what you were doing? Did, did the news start to get around that you were doing this? Did local running clubs approach you? No, I always stayed quite anonymous. I'd always told myself I'd never even enter a race. I won't compete. I'd just go out there, train alone, just to prove to myself that I could uh, run as far as I needed to. Now, I, my uh, early years were spent as a, a track athlete running 800, 1500 meter runners uh, races. And I used to knock in up to 70 miles a week. So I know exactly what it's like with the injuries and running around the streets when I was competing of Edinburgh and then laterally London. With full sight, I was known to run into quite a few obstacles. <laughs> <laughs> but you were running with no sight. How did you avoid running into objects? And, and I read that you once ran into a burnt out wreck of a car. So obviously it did happen. But how do you deal with that, the, the uncertainty of not knowing exactly where your foot's going, even with these advanced senses that you developed? Belief. Mm-hmm. Believe it's going to go well. You know, if I spent all my time worrying about how often it was going to go wrong, I'd have never gone out. And, you know, everything I've done has just been a management of fear. It was scary. Sometimes the fear would get on top of me while I was out there, and I'd just sit down on the pavement for 10 minutes to calm down. And once I'd calmed down enough, I'd stand back up and I'd carry on. And there were Lots of close calls got run over before. You know, cars, I didn't obviously didn't see them, would get so close, they'd move my clothes. Wow. Ran into posts, traffic lights, lampposts. But every time, I'd get back out and I'd do it again. And, you know, you iron out those mistakes. You, you know, posts, thankfully, don't move. They're quite a static object. Um, you know, you can remember where they are. Other people, you know, people may have seen a photo of me, you know, I'm, I'm 6'2", shaved head, you know, people <laughs> thankfully move out of my way. Yeah. <laughs> so, that, that look that I have uh, is actually quite a benefit that they would move. And yeah, it was, sometimes it was just, it was too much because um, there's a bit of the, the route that I memorized where you have to cross this road. And this particular road is a national speed limit road. So that's 60 miles an hour. The cars can, you know, go down this road. So you have to time it to perfection. So some days I would feel so confident that like 50 meters away from the road, I'd twist my head and I'd listen for the cars. So by the time I got to the road, I would just sprint straight across knowing that I'd make it. Hmm. And then other days I'd be too scared to cross it. 
and I'd stand at the side of the road and I'd just be there for minutes, just too scared to cross. And some days I could manage the fear incredibly well. Other days, just couldn't do it. Just could not do it. And, you know, I, I wish I did have a button that I could press and every day I could do it, but every day is not the same. Some days, you know, you can, you can deal with uh, the stress quite well. Some days it just gets on top of you and you can just do the best you can on a bad day. And that's what I told myself, you know, even on a bad day, I was still going out. Fair enough, I wouldn't dare cross that road or, you know, I'd cut a bit of the, the route out that was just tough and feeling underfoot that just wasn't enough to, you know, make sure you were going to get it right every time. So the days I, I wasn't feeling it, I just wouldn't, you know, run those bits, I'd shorten the route, I'd double back a little bit more. And then sometimes I'd be out for like three hours and then I'd build up enough confidence after three hours to then run the bit that I'd be too scared to run earlier in the day and yeah that's how I piece it together do the best you can on a bad day and on a good day well you always do great on a good day so we were, I'm going to come and talk about the mindset but let's get into the the real meat of your running journey you said that you never had an intention to run a race but my goodness you have <laughs> embraced <laughs> some pretty monumental challenges from running from Boston to New York, the New York Marathon, the Four Deserts Marathon in Namibia. And could you just give us a, an overview of how those, what changed to make you embrace the challenge of running a race amongst particularly marathons where there are thousands of people around you? Well, this is going to sound incredibly arrogant. So I'm going to put an arrogant warning in here. <laughs> <laughs> I will also quickly say that I'm not fast. You know, you, you mentioned you were a track athlete when you were younger. Yeah. I am so slow. Uh, so so there's all my sort of uh, little warnings before I go into this. But I was training a lot. If you train a lot, you know, you can get quite fit. How many miles were you putting in? I think I peaked around 75, 80 a week. Yeah. So yeah, yeah that's good shape to, a uh, good distance to be running a marathon. So yeah. Yeah. But like I say, it wasn't, wasn't speed you know mm. I, i'm sure you were doing 75 miles and you were doing a lot of speed work i was just going out and just running yeah you know what i mean at a constant constant speed so one day i just was sat at the <laughs> the dining room table with my wife and i said uh, i think i'm finally going to enter a race she says really she says yeah yeah i said uh, i'm going to enter a hundred mile race <laughs> not the local 5k <laughs> and uh, she says well shouldn't you enter a marathon or something? I said, uh, well, I know I can run a marathon. I don't know if I can run 100 miles. So I'm going to enter the 100 miles. And that was that. So why enter a race? I know I can finish. You know, what I was, you know, this running for me was just seeing how far I could go. That's what it was about. It wasn't about the time or anything like that. It was just how far can I go? And I told myself, if I do manage to get to the end of the 100 miles, then I'll turn around and I'll carry on running just to see how far I could go. And that's the only reason I ever entered the race, just to see if I could do it. Mm -hmm. And? I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> I only, uh, on that first ever race, I only managed 83. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> 
us, yeah, only 83. <laughs> yeah. I, I, <laughs> and I, on flat ground? No, it, was, it wasn't. That's what killed me, you see. I'd trained at an airport, which is obviously flat. So I'd never run a hill. There's no hills. Just, you know, I couldn't do a hill training if there wasn't a hill. And the 100-mile race, unfortunately, was um, pretty much uphill. So turned out it's a lot harder to run up an hill than it is on flat. And I found that out in... Uh, <laughs> a rude awakening, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, gosh, why do people run up these hills? Why don't people just run on flat? I'm going to go run on a track. It's easier. <laughs> There's no hills. <laughs> so you went from that experience undeterred and carried on. What led you to the States to take on the New York Marathon and the Boston to New York? Well, I'd always wanted to run a marathon at some point. And I really loved New York as a city. I visited New York while I still had vision. You know, part of my honeymoon was in New York. I've been a lot. Like, I think a few years ago, I was going like five, six times a year to New York. It's somewhere that, as a city, I just enjoy, uh, enjoy experiencing. So New York Marathon, fantastic. And weirdly, I'd done a TV commercial for ASICs. At this point in time, ASICs were the sponsor for the marathon. Mm -hmm. So they gave me the slot. So I head head over to run the marathon. And it just so happens to be the only year the New York Marathon's been cancelled. So then now I'm, uh, I'm in America. And I'm like, oh, well, the race is not going on, but let's just, let's just have some fun. So, you know, we down at the Hudson and we bump into this guy, we get talking, then he invites us to his house for dinner. So we go to his house for dinner and it ends up being a you know great experience rather than the marathon. We meet some fantastic people. So now I come back to England and you're allowed to defer your slot. So I deferred my slot two years because this time I'm now at university uh, doing my degree. So I thought you know, let's make it as hard as possible. Let's run this race in my dissertation period. So I had to do my dissertation as well as training. And the intention was, because it was RunKeeper that created this app that, you know, got me out running, why not run from their headquarters in Boston to the start line of the New York Marathon and then run the marathon? Off the back of that? Yeah, so I ran from Boston to New York to get to the marathon. And that was my first ever marathon as well. I'd never run a marathon uh, up until that point. So wait a minute. So you ran over 200 miles in the days leading up to the marathon? Yeah. No, that includes the marathon distance. Wow. So that is... So I had, I had to run like up to and just to get to, to New York. Wow. That is something else. I mean, that's... Uh, the most marathon runners talk about tapering towards <laughs> in the final weeks. <laughs> Well, it, it, like I say, it's, it's not necessarily about the race. It's, it was always just to see how far I'd go. And, and that was more about the experience. You know, I'd been offered these fantastic opportunities from, you know, ACITS giving me the entrance to the race. And then, you know, that gave me the two years to train. And I really wanted to, for me, it was almost like a pilgrimage. Visiting the headquarters of Runkeeper to say thank you for making this out app accessible if you didn't create this app i would never have started on this journey and even that was incredible because back then there was a voice of runkeeper you know the actual yeah. voice that says the distances now that's a real person or it was back then and it was someone called cat so i was in a running store in boston and cat was there and she came up to speak to me that's and brilliant 
you know, Kat's voice is the voice that gave me the confidence to go out and run every day. It was her voice in my head saying how far I'd gone. So her voice to me had almost become the voice in my head, the voice that could tell me I could keep going. And now this was a real person that was there. And I got to meet her. And that's what it's always been about. The experiences, the distance, the people I meet. You know, a lot of the times I don't even look at my time. Just finish the race, go home. Because I'm not too fussed. I'm more bothered about did I have a great experience at that race, who did I get to run with? And so getting to run between those two cities and meet so many people, like every night we stayed in a different Airbnb and it was just incredible. Got to meet so many different people. And I think out of everything I've done, that was probably the most memorable and perhaps one of the only things I'd, uh, I'd repeat. I'd definitely do it again at some point. That must have been a very moving moment when you met Kat. Yeah. It was. I don't think, you know, Kat had realised how much she meant to me. You know, that voice. And as another sub-story, I'm sure no one will get in trouble for this now, but so ASICs brought Runkeeper out. Uh-huh. So then they ended up being like some issues around, you know, like copyright and legality. Da, 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 da. So when I created my own system, I wanted Kat's voice, but they weren't allowed to release the voice. Uh-huh. So Kat's husband gave me a pen drive and said, that's Kat's voice. Oh, fantastic. And so you, do you still use the Runkeeper app? Yeah. And with still with Kat's voice on it? I still use a default voice, yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. And it must be interesting because when you meet someone for the first time, not in most instances, people would, you'd hear the voice and put a face to it, but you would not, you've never been able to put a face to her voice. So she'll always be that voice regardless. Yeah, I've, I've not, she's actually a singer in a band. I think she's quite famous. Uh, but I've, I've no idea what she looks like. That's amazing. What's, we have to put her in the show notes. What is her name? Cat what? Oh, do you know what? I only know is Cat. Okay, we'll, we'll do some digging and find it. We'll leave part one there. In part two, we cover the technologies that are helping Simon and others like him run with a spatial awareness of sighted runners. His life as a motivational speaker, an educator, and his perspectives on living with fear, confronting failure, adversity, and resilience. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player to listen and subscribe. This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKaylee and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time.